This episode of Sleep Apnea Stories is sponsored by Inspire. One of the most compelling stories I ever heard on the podcast was my conversation with Karen Wolk. Karen talked all about her life being transformed by Inspire. Like so many people with sleep apnea, Karen struggled to get used to CPAP. Inspire has been helping sleep apnea patients who struggle with CPAP get the sleep they need to live the life they want. It's a small device that works inside your body. There's no mask and no hose. While you sleep, Inspire sends a gentle pulse to your tongue to keep your airway clear so that you can breathe normally. See if you qualify at inspiresleep.com. Inspire's not for everyone. Talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you and review important safety information at inspiresleep.com. On this podcast, we discuss medical diagnoses and procedures. All of the guests express their own opinions. You should always seek medical advice from a trained and credentialed professional when making decisions about your own health. Welcome to the Sleep Apnea Stories podcast. I'm Emma Cooksey, and I've been coping with sleep apnea since childhood. I didn't know anyone in my life with a sleep disorder, so I decided to start this podcast. I'm here to build community and provide a platform for people with sleep apnea to tell their stories. Together, we can shatter stereotypes and raise awareness. We'll be exploring all sorts of treatment options and lifestyle choices to help you live your best life with sleep apnea. This is Sleep Apnea Stories, and I'm so glad you're here. Hey everyone, it's Emma Cooksey here, and I'm your host. So today is the 10th episode of the season. So normally what I do is organize my podcast into... Um, seasons which last for 10 episodes and then I usually have a break in between but this time I'm gonna have um, I'll still have episodes the next three or four weeks but they're gonna be kind of shorter and more informal and I'm just gonna address some of the things that you guys have asked me to talk about so next week there'll be an episode about um for new and struggling CPAP users and some of the common problems and how to solve them because that's what I get asked all the time. So I hope that's going to be really helpful. So if you're listening right when this episode airs um, on August 3rd, I'm having an Instagram live with Dr. Jameson Spencer, who is a dentist doing oral appliance therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. And he's going to be talking a little bit about the CPAP recall and how he's been helping some patients since that who were waiting a long time for a CPAP um, by giving them an oral appliance. And so you guys have been sending in questions on Instagram. If you guys have any other questions, you might just be able to get them in <laughs> um, if you're listening really early when this comes out. But if not, the I always, um, whenever I record an Instagram live, I always save it and they're on my grid on Instagram. So you can always go back and watch it after the fact. So the other thing is thank you so much to everybody who endorsed me for 
the social health awards. So I was nominated for social media master. <laughs> they give awards to patient advocates and um, for the work they do. So I'm down to six, me and five other people are finalists for that award. I mean, we'll see, you never know. <laughs> I don't feel like I usually ever win anything though. So, but it's really, um, like people say for the Oscars, it's really nice to be nominated. <laughs> So this episode today is going to be about pregnancy and obstructive sleep apnea, which is an area that a lot of you have asked about. We're talking today with a researcher who does research around this topic, but just know that there's going to be some other episodes coming in the next season, which are going to also cover pregnancy. But today's episode is with Dr. Louise O'Brien. She is an associate professor in the Department of Neurology, the Division of Sleep Medicine, an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and an associate research scientist in the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery. And that's all at the University of Michigan. Dr. O'Brien's primary research interests include the impact of sleep disruption and its treatment in pregnancy and the association with adverse maternal and fetal outcomes, including fetal growth restriction and stillbirth. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Louise O'Brien. So Dr. O'Brien, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So the first question I always ask everybody is like, where are you right now? And tell me a bit about like the job that you do, but maybe you want to like tell us how you got there because <laughs> your accent is right. not very <laughs> Michigan. <laughs> very Michigan like, no. So I am at the University of Michigan. Um, I am in the Division of Sleep Medicine, which is in the Department of Neurology. And um, I also have um, a split appointment with the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology here at Michigan as well, because obviously a lot of what I do is, is with yeah. pregnant women in sleep. Um, how did I get into this field? That's a, that's a good question, actually. Well, I'm from the UK, as you can probably tell. I'm, I'm from Newcastle um, originally, and I did my um, PhD in maternal infant health. Um, nothing to do with sleep, really, except that we, we were um, part of what I did was I was involved in some research into sudden infant death syndrome. So we were monitoring babies, you know, trying to understand why some babies suddenly died unexpectedly yeah. um, during the night. And it was when we were monitoring all these babies, I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I really don't know much about sleep. And here we are monitoring babies to look at their physiological patterns during sleep. And I really don't understand what happens and so that kind of got me interested in in sleep and you know as I said I was in the UK and sleep was not a big thing in the UK at the time this was like the early 90s um showed my age <laughs> and so that's how I ended up in the US and I came over here and did um a fellowship in pediatric sleep research um, loved it and then just realized you know nobody's doing this in pregnant women why is nobody doing this yes. probably because most pregnant women don't sleep great <laughs> so and so I really wanted to um, you know to marry those topics of sleep and pregnancy and I literally found like one paper from Australia actually and that was it 
Yeah, so, because okay, you wrote well, all the papers. Well, not now, but, <laughs> but I was really lucky to get, you know, I got into this field right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, you can go and Google it now or look in the libraries and there are lots and lots of people doing this. So that's yeah. great because it tells you that this is a field that really, you know, really needs to be to be and researched. We, we desperately impacts, need the research. Yeah. So I have to, before we really get into it, I have to just um, own up to my own, like, like I started a podcast kind of because I thought lots of people needed to know more about sleep apnea, but I'm very self-interested as well. So I had one, I have two girls who are nine and 14. And the first one I had, I had, I went undiagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea for more than 10 years. That pregnancy, I was untreated with, with obstructive sleep apnea. And then five years later, I had another child and I was on CPAP. So I'm just super interested in the differences. And fortunately for me, like everything has turned out well with my children, but it's just an area of real interest to me because of the personal <laughs> um, part to it. So maybe just start by telling us a little bit about like obstructive sleep apnea being like it gets more common in pregnant women. Like, is that just to do with weight gain or what do we know about that? So, you know, it's so it, it does. I mean, the, the literature is limited in terms of objective data from sleep studies, right? Because it's hard to get pregnant yeah. women into the sleep lab and stay overnight. Um, but what we do know is that certainly the symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea, like snoring, for instance, that does increase um, as pregnancy progresses, likely related to weight gain, some fluid retention, you know, things like that. Um, we estimate that probably about it's probably underestimated, but maybe somewhere between four and 9% of women will probably have, you know, these symptoms prior to pregnancy. And then as pregnancy um, progresses, these symptoms get worse to the point that about a third of women in general, by the end of pregnancy, you know, have habitual snoring. And when I say habitual snoring, I mean about three nights a week or more. Yeah. Um, so it's about a third. Now, if you think about high risk women, so women that are hypertensive, so they've got gestational hypertension or preeclampsia in the pregnancy, then it's probably more like 80% that have habitual snoring. So that's, you know, that's a big sort of red flag. Um, when it comes to objective diagnoses of sleep apnea, that's where the literature is not very you know, intense. So there's not a, this, it's yeah. still wide open to really look at this, but there's a couple of studies that have been done in relatively large populations that suggest that sleep apnea as a diagnosis is probably somewhere in the region of 10 to 20% of pregnant women. And which again is a massive proportion really. Um, and so do we know how many of those people are actually getting diagnosed and treated? Or oh, that's just an estimate of yeah, this is from research studies. It. Yeah, so yeah. this is from research studies where they're enrolling pregnant women um, and, and tracking, maybe tracking, I mean, maybe two sleep studies during pregnancy. Yeah. Um, and then you can see that the majority of pregnant women don't actually enter pregnancy with sleep apnea. Um, mm -hmm. It's more like it, it develops as the pregnancy progresses. So, so that's where that data comes from. Today, I'm joined by one of our sponsors of the podcast, Kelly with Airway Management, the manufacturer of TAP Sleep Care. How's it going, Kelly? Hey, Emma. It's great. Happy to be here. The MyTAP doesn't involve 
lengthy custom fitting, right? Somebody can actually order that and do the fitting part themselves. That's right. Um, the MyTab can be fit by both doctors and patients. It's available through traditional CPAP channels such as CPAP.com and Apria Direct. And now we have new research on our non-custom appliance, MyTap, that shows equal effectiveness to custom therapy. Hmm, that's great. How does this new research affect consumers? Well, this research opens the opportunity for more physicians and dentists and ultimately patients to use MyTap because it's a low-cost, immediate oral appliance. So if people want to learn more, where can they go? They can visit tapintosleep.com to find a provider near them, or they can fill out our Get Started form on our website um, and get connected with someone on our team. Thanks so much, Kelly. Well, thank you, Emma. Thanks for having me. We, among a couple of others, have done some studies where we've taken high-risk pregnant women, meaning they're hypertensive, right? So if you're hypertensive, you could be in our study and we're going to give you a sleep study. We're not enrolling because you're complaining of sleep problems. We're enrolling because you have high blood pressure. Right. And so when we've done that, I think there's two or three studies out there now that when you do that, we found that, you know, wow, half of these women with gestational hypertension or preeclampsia actually had sleep apnea and nobody knew about it. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of shocking, right? Because it's not really on shocking. most yeah. obstetricians' radars, to be honest, because they have a lot of other issues to be dealing with in a clinic visit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we think it should be. And of course, like I see it all from the actual women who tell, tell their stories and stuff. I think that that, um, what happened to me is extremely common of going to your doctor and saying, I'm really tired. I'm really sleepy during the day. And they say you're pregnant. That's very normal in pregnancy. So I think a lot of people are not kind of going on to actually have sleep studies because of that right. whole situation. So maybe just tell us a little bit about what we know about untreated obstructive sleep apnea, you know, what the effects on a pregnant woman are like, and then maybe we can get into what happens with the baby. Yeah. So, I mean, so what you just said about going to the doctor and being tired and fatigued, I mean, that's so true. And yet they're not always, it's not always sleep apnea, right? Right. Of course. Because, yeah. And so it's, it's hard to tease yeah. out without doing that sleep study. It's right. really hard to tease yeah. out. Um, and it's like I said before, sleep studies are cumbersome, they're burdensome, they're expensive. And yeah. depending on where you live, you might not have easy access to them. Yeah. Um, although there are home monitors now that, that, you know, that are available, which is a different story. But in terms of, you know, how, how it makes you feel, I mean, you do feel tired. The classical um, description is, you know, daytime sleepiness and loud snoring and being overweight. But what we've learned in the past decade is actually that's more not always the case, yeah. right? And there are lean women that are not complaining of daytime sleepiness that actually have sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we found um, through research that we've done, that others have done, is that women do tend to present a little differently in terms of their symptoms. So if the doctor at least knows a little bit about sleep medicine, um, they may be looking for that sleepy, overweight, typically male <laughs> patient. Yeah. But um, large but women, neck. <laughs> right, but women tend yeah. to be, you know, complaining of I'm tired, I'm fatigued, I've got no energy. 
and anxious um, obviously mm-hmm. often like you know yeah. like that'll be yeah. a really big thing that people say yeah so so I, I think daytime sleeping is sure it's there but I think in for women it tends to be more like I just got no energy yeah you know, I'm fatigued um you know even mouth breathing or morning headaches or you know night sweats or something you know, they're, they're all symptoms yeah. of sleep apnea that often get overlooked and so inside a woman's body like what's happening physiologically so what's or maybe we don't know I don't I don't know where the research I think we we know in general we know from sleep apnea yeah um you know from from non-pregnant studies but um you know what we know is there's kind of two parts to it so there's obviously this oxygen drop that happens you know when you stop breathing your oxygen will drop and you'll gasp and it'll come back and there's kind of like a cycle um so the oxygen does drop Um, But also your nervous system, you know, you have your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system and your sympathetic nervous system is like a little bit like your fight or flight response. Um, And so that's what ends up um, if that's activated, you know, cyclically throughout the night and and suddenly your, you know, your heart rate might go up, your blood pressure might spike a little bit. And if that's going in cycles, you know, ultimately that can lead to, you know, the hypertension um, so you've got those two elements going on when you've got sleep apnea. Um, so, the, you know, there's a lot of research done in the non-pregnant person, but there's, yeah. uh, it's definitely lacking when it comes to pregnant women because yeah. their physiology is a little bit different. I think I, I'm really bad. Like I've, I've interviewed a number of researchers now, and I think I'm really bad because I always think that we know everything, but there's an awful lot of stuff yeah. we don't know. So I'm like, what about this? Why don't we know this? And it's like, because we haven't done the research. And so what about with the baby? You said that you were kind of looking into babies and SIDS. So what do do we know? Do we know that there's a link there? Like, what do we know about what's happening to a baby with untreated sleep apnea in the mother? I haven't worked in the SIDS field for a long time. And the literature has moved on. And it's been the 90s, really, since I I did work in there. So we've definitely moved on in terms of that. Um, But in terms of um, maternal sleep apnea in the baby, historically I mean historically we're talking like 1990 something was like the first you're making me feel very old (laughs) (laughs) um so there was you know there I mean there have been like back in the 70s like there have been like a couple of case reports so like people are just reporting on one woman or maybe two or three women but that's it saying hey you know this woman has apnea and look when we recorded the baby's heart rate it drops when you know, the mother has an apnea or a pause in in breathing. And then it just kind of got lost in the literature. Mm. And it wasn't until, you know, I think like 96 to 2000, when people started pulling this out of the literature again. Um, And then a study came out saying, hey, you know, in women that snore at least three nights a week, um, their babies seem to be born a bit smaller. Mm. And so that it's, you know, we're, we're literally at 20, 25 years and it's the last, I would say, five to 10 that it's really taken off in terms of looking at the baby. And we still mm-hmm. don't have a whole lot of data. But what we appear to know is that maternal sleep apnea alters fetal growth patterns. Okay. Now, I, I'm kind of hesitant to say, you know, which direction I'd say if I had to hedge my bets, it would be small babies. But I think because... Um, maternal sleep apnea is linked with hypertension which can you know constrict the vessels can reduce placental blood flow babies can be born smaller it's also associated with diabetes and diabetes as we know bigger babies result in bigger babies right so so if you look at the research sure there's um there's studies saying babies are born smaller there's studies saying babies are born bigger and this gets at the mechanisms right what's what's 
producing which effect. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in is the timing of these symptoms, because in my mind, as a, as a physiologist by background, um, it doesn't make sense to me that this is just one thing. I think, you know, if you yes. go into the pregnancy with sleep apnea, it's different than if you develop it because of sleep apnea. And so back in, oh, we're talking 2008, 9, 10, we did a study symptoms. This is all symptom based, but we asked women, you know, when did you start having these symptoms? Um, did you have these symptoms before you got pregnant? And what we found was that the women who said, you know, I developed these symptoms, the habitual snoring, uh, because of the pregnancy, like this happened when I was pregnant, yes. they were the women that had the gestational hypertension and the preeclampsia. However, the women that went into the pregnancy already with sleep apnea symptoms, they were the ones that had the small babies. And if you didn't ask that difference in timing, it would kind of wash out and you're, you know, you wouldn't get much of an yes. outcome. So the way we think about that, I don't know if we're right, but this is kind of the working hypothesis is mm -hmm. that, you know, if the woman is hit with a challenge during her pregnancy, that her body just doesn't cope very well. And the outcome is the hypertension it doesn't have time to adapt. If she goes into the pregnancy with it, her body's already adapted to it and figured out a way to cope. And then she's not at as high a risk of gestational mm. hypertension, preeclampsia as somebody that develops it during pregnancy. In terms of the baby, I think of it as, you know, if you go into the pregnancy with sleep apnea, that, that, um, that baby just doesn't get a good start in life that, you know, that little fetus just, just can't get, can't get going, can't get, you know, can't get growing. Whereas if you develop it at some point in pregnancy, maybe by that point, that baby will have already developed growing, enough. already yeah. developed and sure it may be born a little smaller than might be anticipated but it'll still be fine so so we can look at things like fetal growth restriction where a baby will be like less than 10 percent um you know we have your centiles that be less than the 10 yes the 10th centile like on a like you know you take your kids to the pediatrician they do a growth chart yeah, yeah. so fetal growth charts exist um, although they're a little harder to do if you, you know, because you don't want to be ultrasounding women frequently. No, and I feel like a lot of it is guesswork because they're measuring your your belly and kind of being like, I think they're about this size and then they come out a totally different size. <laughs> yeah, so we tend to say, you know, less than a certain birth weight or, you know, on a centile chart, less, you know, less than the 10th centile of where they should be given their gestational age and their, you know, and their birth weight. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, those studies, while that's pretty much, I wouldn't say it's all we've got, it's the majority of what we've got right now. That's just looking at one endpoint and it's missing everything in the middle. Yeah. Right? It's missing that fetal growth, that development It's yeah. just measuring, oh, birth weight out oh, here they are. Let's, let's weigh them. Um, and so we did a, a study and this was like a, a chart review study so we just looked back in medical records of women who had participated in our sleep studies and we looked back at the ones who had had um, ultrasound measures at several points during their pregnancy now the, of course there's a caveat to that right because not everybody gets serial growth ultrasounds there's usually yeah. a reason why you get it so these right. were higher risk women anyway if they suspect something's wrong right. or yeah right so these were higher risk women anyway so it's a little bit skewed but what we found we had three groups of women women who'd had sleep studies and were shown to be negative women who'd had sleep studies were shown to be positive for sleep apnea but declined treatment or, or just had treatment didn't use it and then women who were positive for sleep apnea but also um used CPAP during pregnancy and when we plotted the, the fetal growth on those charts, we found that the women who had sleep apnea 
um, their babies seem to fall across the growth charts mm. in the third trimester, even if they were still born within normal limits. So they might have been, you know, a seven pound baby, but if you mm. plotted their growth chart and it went, you know, it followed its curve, they probably should have been a nine pound baby. Got it. Right? So they wouldn't have fit any criteria of being growth restricted. But right. if you looked at their pattern, you could see like a falling off. Yeah. Um, of that growth curve and then that's really interesting that that was very interesting and then we looked at the women who'd had CPAP and their babies seemed to be growing okay yeah so we did a a prospective study because we're like oh this is exciting like you know to do this with women who typically wouldn't you know women who wouldn't get ultrasounds um we want to look at you know healthy women too and yeah we're still pulling the data for that study but um we finished the study and we just haven't fully analyzed it yet so i'm excited to see what i'm excited what that would show it's fascinating um so w- one of the things i was going to ask you about was i feel like with i was just at the sleep conference in charlotte and i feel like a lot of people presenting were talking about I think back in the day there used to be this thing of like obstructive sleep apnea was like overweight men (laughs) it was all to do with like AHI like you know like if they had a really big number they were severe and they had severe symptoms and all that and it seems like now people are really starting to understand more about sleep apnea and all the different experiences of it just I guess I'm just wondering in your research if you're finding that that there's like very different experiences where some people with lower AHIs will have really severe symptoms and some people with higher AHIs don't and just I feel like I think you're absolutely right and and it's often the case that you know women might have more mild disease say than men yeah but their consequences might be just as disruptive but Mm -hmm. it's almost like they're not being um, seen as sort of, you know, higher up on the radar to be, you know, to be treated because they, they present a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but I mean, it, it does, people do present differently. And there's so many women, you know, that we've done, like the hypertension study I mentioned earlier, none of these women had actually, you know, gone to their doctor and complained about sleep problems. And yet we found half of them, or just under half, it was 40 something percent that had, um, that had overt sleep apnea. You know, and I think 20% of the ones that had the sleep apnea had severe sleep apnea and yet they'd never, yeah, you know, they'd never gone um, to their doctor and, or they'd gone to their doctor in tears saying, I feel really overwhelmed. And it was and never brought the doctor up. doctor said, you right seem depressed happened. and anxious mm-hmm. and they never kind of went actually you know, linked it up to anything to do with their sleep. It's pretty interesting. So what do you think we need more research on? I think we need more research on interventions because, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, you know, a, a significant proportion of pregnant women have sleep apnea when they're pregnant, but, you know, treatment is, can be challenging, can be difficult, et cetera, et cetera, for all those reasons we've already talked about. But if we do treat them, does it make a difference? Because if it makes a difference, then there's more motivation, you know, to treat. And, yeah. you know, I can tell you from our experience using CPAP in pregnancy, it's really hard. <laughs> It's really challenging. I know. Many of them have the children. <laughs> I did home, it. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you know, right? It's not yeah, easy. Yeah. No. It's not easy. So, you know, we do look at like alternatives. Can we look at sleep position? You know, yeah. can we, especially how, you know, most pregnant, I wouldn't say all, because we've seen some pretty severe um, apnea hypopnea indexes, you know, the, um, yeah. 
the, the severity level of sleep apnea in pregnant women. But I'd say most pregnant women have a more milder, mild to moderate form. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes CPAP is just so uncomfortable and they don't feel yeah. the benefits um, straight away. Because I think that's definitely. Yeah, I think in some ways I was lucky just because I was diagnosed like, you know, a, a few years before my second pregnancy. So by the time I, you know, was pregnant, I was used to kind of using my CPAP. But people who are diagnosed during pregnancy and have to try and get used to wearing a mask and being just uncomfortable because of being pregnant it's a lot (laughs) it's hard and even getting to that point where you're diagnosed during pregnancy can be really difficult because you know obstetricians midwives they have you know a lot of things to cover in their in their visits and sleep often isn't one of them and then even if they do bring it up sometimes it's either the the provider or the patient will be like oh you know let me just have this baby and then I'll go yes and get sorted and if it truly is, you know, having this impact on fetal growth, on even preterm delivery, um, you know, why wait, right? right? Why wait? Yeah. It's, it's probably beneficial to get. Um, what do you think about where we're at with screening for sleep apnea in pregnant women? Do you think that we need more education? Like, I know it can be really, really tricky. Like, I'm not underestimating all the OBGYNs have going on (laughs) trying to like monitor someone's pregnancy but do we need more training in spotting those signs of obstructive sleep apnea maybe asking a few questions you know like do you snore like you know absolutely and you know we've tried to do that and it is it is challenging Mm -hmm. um because if you ask a pregnant woman you know do you snore do you snore at least three nights a week you're going to get an awful lot that say yes and then what do you do you know, do you refer a third of your population, you know, or if you're a, you know, a high risk, if clinic is not a high risk, that'd be most of your patients. And so we had um, here at Michigan, we had developed um, almost like a triage system saying, you know, if you ask your patient these questions, if she snores at least three nights a week, if she's overweight, if she has high blood pressure, um, you know, that was kind of like the three point criteria. So we didn't overwhelm the sleep service. Yeah. Um, so you can do things like that. And there are other places that are, you know, starting to, to screen more and, um, and have more communications between the obstetric services and the sleep services. So it's yeah. happening, but it's happening slowly. Yeah, we'd like it to be a little bit quicker. I think also, I, I don't know if it's like growing up with the NHS or, or my idea about like the American health system and I still I mean it's been 15 years and I still struggle with insurance companies but I think that it's that whole like I just feel like well everybody should get a sleep study if they have these things just to rule it out why wouldn't you just do it and then the you know like health insurance companies are like because we can't afford to pay for you know like 80 percent of women to get sleep studies right so, yeah, yeah I hear you I mean I I've been here 22 years and I still don't understand the American health insurance system yeah. I really don't if you're the patient who's able to advocate for yourself and say I have all of these symptoms. I noticed that, you know, like these could be obstructive sleep apnea. I'd really like to get a sleep study. You know, like doctors will usually work with you, but I think that, you know, and hopefully we'll get to the point where people don't need to do that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, doctors are more educated about sleep, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say like the the take home message that, that we've learned doing these studies is that if you have a pregnant woman 
who has high blood pressure and she says, yes, I do snore several nights a week. That's probably the woman that needs the referral. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you listen to the podcast, you know how many of the guests have dealt with mental health challenges along with sleep apnea. I have struggled with anxiety and depression for years and have found therapy so helpful in my journey. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. So you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. Visit betterhelp.com slash Emma. That's betterhelp.com slash Emma and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. There's a special offer for Sleep Apnea Stories listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Emma. It's not just sleep apnea, it's also sleep duration, right? So having short sleep is also linked to blood pressures going up. It's especially linked to um, glucose levels going up and and ending up in um, gestational diabetes. We're starting to learn now that even if you get sufficient sleep, if your sleep is timed wrongly, so, you know- too late or- Yeah, too late, usually too late. We always hear about, oh, you need to get at least seven, eight hours of sleep if you're an adult and less than six is bad. And yeah, sure, less than six is bad. But if you still get eight hours, but your sleep is completely mistimed, and we think of shift workers here, right? When we're thinking about completely mistimed sleep with night night mm-hmm. shift, then that's also linked with poor outcomes. We don't know a whole lot in pregnancy. The research is just starting, but there are studies to say that it might be linked with gestational diabetes. Because so they're, they're looking at pregnant these. women who are sleeping at different times, like they're not sleeping in the normal nighttime window it kind of shifted so we do this by something called midpoint of sleep so literally it is what it says it is it's the middle point of your sleep and for the average person that's somewhere between 2 and 4 a.m but if it's after four right so if it's like five or six and that's the middle point of your sleep then you know that's which night shift workers that happens that's Mm. now showing to be linked and with poor outcomes, much more of this is known in the non-pregnant um, population, but we're starting to look at this now in pregnancy. So for instance, th- these works really came about because of looking at shift workers and shift working women that were struggling to get pregnant, or if they got pregnant, they had a lot of miscarriages. 
Yeah. And so, you know, it's it, your circadian rhythm is really important. And a lot of this, most of the cells in your body have a circadian clock. And so if mm-hmm. these, you know, you're secreting your hormone and your melatonin, and, and if you're trying to sleep off cycle to some of your hormone secretions, the long-term consequences we're learning can ultimately end up with things like cancer. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating area, obviously to study it, you study long-term, right. And it's hard to get money (laughs) to study for years and years and years and years. Um, But that's, that's certainly a very, um, interesting and new part of the, the sleep field and applying that to pregnant women. And, you know, if their circadian cycles are getting messed up, it's, it's, you know, a health, potentially a health impact for the mom, but also, what's it doing to that baby? And we just don't know yet. Is it increasing preterm birth? Like, you know, what is, what is it doing? So that's a. So the fertility and the miscarriage part is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there is some work now. I think there's a paper just recently come out in the last couple of years looking at, you know, does sleep apnea during conception, does that impact miscarriage rate? What do, what do we know? Do we yeah, know the we answer? We don't. No, we're just we looking. This is, we're just starting to look at. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if it did, though. Because I, it, just, it affects your entire body. And, and I think especially like your nervous system. Right. Yeah. And that that's huge with conception. Yeah. And you think about the circadian patterns, right? The sort of night, day, you know, your hormones, your body temperature. They're all on this rhythm. And if you're trying to, you know, stay up really late, go to bed at 2am, get up at lunchtime, you're kind of getting your body off its natural rhythm. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, are we having more trouble conceiving? And I think the answer is probably yes. You know, yeah. there's certainly some literature out there to support that. Wow. So that, that's a super interesting field. That, really interesting. You know, it's really in its infancy right now, but... Um, and then there's one other thing that I would love to mention in this sort of pregnancy-related um, podcast is position. Yes, let's talk all about that. That's one of my favorite (laughs) subjects. (laughs) So sleep position has been a um, sort of a hot topic in pregnancy for a few years now, you know, a good few years now. And it all started, um, this this is kind of in in terms of the stillbirth literature. So it all started with a study um, out of New Zealand by a fellow Brit in New Zealand. We're Um, everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) There's no one Um, left. (laughs) um, Showing that women who had had um, a third trimester stillbirth, so, you know, a stillbirth that a baby potentially, if if this could have been recognized, you know, could have could have lived you know on its own um they were more likely to have reported going to sleep on their back okay which is kind of the opposite when you think about SIDS right because in yes. this sudden the death syndrome world we always think about going to sleep putting the baby to sleep yeah you know on, on their back. back and so that study came out of New Zealand um we had a smaller study going in Ghana in Africa at the time and we found the same thing when we looked at our data then Sydney came out and said the same thing and then there was a study in the UK that was um, actually designed to do that. The, these other studies were, were designed to look at, you know, other things as well. They weren't designed purely for position, but the one in the UK was designed um, purely to look at, at position, found the exact same thing. So here we have multiple studies in several different continents, all saying the same thing, that women who reported going to sleep on their back were more likely to have stillbirth actually it was the other way around it was women with stillbirth were more likely to report going on their back yeah yeah those kind of differences matter in academics (laughs) so i feel like um 
as pregnant women, we were definitely told like sleep on your side. And I almost wonder just because with obstructive sleep apnea, oftentimes like positional therapy of sleeping on your side and not your back can really help to keep um, your tongue and soft tissues from falling back and blocking your airway. So I I often wonder that because during my first pregnancy, when um, like I wasn't being treated for obstructive sleep apnea, I definitely was sleeping always on my side. And I wonder if that maybe helped. It could have done. It could have yeah. done. And we have, you know, we've done home sleep studies on women, you know, where we can send them home with a little device and we can collect pretty much most of the same signal. Not yeah. all. Um, and we, you know, we haven't put that data together yet, but we do have the position data. We do have the sleep apnea data. We do have the oxygen data. Um, although in a couple of hundred women, it probably isn't enough to show anything. Um, but with the New Zealand group, we did pool these studies that I just mentioned from around the world, we did pool all of those data and yes, it was symptoms, right? So it wasn't objective. It was just asking the woman, you know, what position did you go to sleep in? Do you snore? We did pull all of that and we looked at that and we didn't find really any effect, um, you know, with the position, the snoring together, but that's not to say there isn't right. Because self-report is, you know, a little bit, Or or you can have the thing like with my husband where I was telling people that I never snored and my husband was like, you kind of like did snore, but I think he thought that I was going to feel bad about it or blame him. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's another thing that women yeah. tend not to, you know, report those same symptoms. Yeah. Say, I guess it's not seen as ladylike. Or ladylike, that's right. That's right. So, so I think that, again, that's another area that, that needs a lot more work, right? And, and also objectively tracking position during the night, because all we know at the moment is what women are telling us. Yes, I go to sleep in this yes. position. So I think pre- pretty much they can remember what position they go to sleep in and what position yes. they wake up in, right? Yeah. But what happens during the night, they don't know. Yeah. So we've done some of those studies. Uh, we haven't, again, we're, we'll, be, we'll be getting ready to analyze them soon. And there's some other groups in you know, New Zealand, um, Australia, um, and the UK that looking are at that too. looking at that as well. So there's going to be data in the next couple of years for sure. Cool. How, how much do you think new technology is going to, like really ramp this up. I think that kind of technology is, you know, it's where the field is going. Um, the, the, the key part is having it, you know, validated against right. that gold standard in lab right. sleep study. Yeah. And that's where a lot of things um, get bottlenecked because one, yeah. you need the money, right? Because it's expensive to run in lab studies yes. and then do this testing. So that's where a lot of things get bottlenecked. And we've had the same problem, you know, our testing things and it doesn't really show what we think or yeah. just not having the money. And then it takes years to get the grants in. And, you know, so that's that kind of slows things down. But absolutely, I think that that's where that's where we have to go. I mean, wearable technology, it's where, where yeah. medicine is going, right? And I feel like it's going to be so much easier if we can get like really accurate home testing. Mm-hmm. That's so much easier for a pregnant woman, because I think what you said about people are like, let me just have the baby and then I'll, you know, look into this whole sleep thing. Whereas I think if it was easier people would be more likely to kind of jump on it, especially if we had the research to show like these are the outcomes with people with CPAP or or with some treatment versus none being a lot better, then yeah. that, you know, I feel like people would be a lot more 
encouraged to actually do something about it. I agree. And that's happening. I mean, that's happening right now. You know, we yeah. have a wearable study going on right now. We've enrolled 150 women, maybe. The goal is 500. <laughs> so we're still. You know, so are you looking for pregnant women to be in that study? Um, we are we're doing it in Michigan right now, but we will be opening it up. So the thing that we have to be careful of is like we need to know like for sure what the medical history is, like what blood pressures are, what BMIs are, what baby outcomes are for real yeah. um, from medical records. So that's why we have to, you know, have women that are having their babies here in Michigan so that, you know, yeah. they can give us consent to look at their records. And so once we've got that phase out of the way, then absolutely we will open this study up yeah. you know, across the country because we can ship a device anywhere and then the device yeah. sends data to the cloud and when you're you've delivered the baby ship the device back i mean yeah. it's it's really going to be that simple but it's the outcomes right so we can do that part we can do the device bit yes but in terms of getting the outcomes it's really difficult um if somebody delivered in another hospital that we do not have access you know to those outcomes yes. and sure people could tell us how much their baby weighed and how many weeks but you know again we'd like to see that actual data actual data that was documented in their medical records yeah. so, so we'll get there we, we will get there that's the goal we'll get there that's good well listen i could talk to you all day <laughs> but thank you very much for sparing the time to talk to me i really yeah, thank it. you that was fun thank you all right thanks so much for listening i love hearing from you if you'd like to be featured in an upcoming episode, please email me at sleepapneastories at gmail.com. That's also the place to get in touch if you just want to say hi or ask a question. Alternatively, you can always reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at sleepapneastories. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. This really helps a wider audience to find the episodes and I really appreciate it.